1: Get ready, everybody. It's time for school. From all appearances, this is poised to be the most normal school year since the pandemic began. But what is the new normal? And how has the environment changed for teachers? From the stresses of readjusting to in-person learning, to book bans, to just trying to make a living, teachers have had a lot to endure. Later this hour, we'll bring you a special Citizen Nashville episode all about teachers. But first, now that yesterday's primary election is past us, we now know who will be facing off against each other this coming November. Joining me now for a recap of those results are WPLN afternoon editor Julia Ritchie and political reporter Blaze Ganey. Hey, Julia, hey, Blaze, how you guys doing?
2: Well, we're tired, but we're here. Okay, I see you guys
1: have ample coffee. We've and got
2: medium Dunkin' here.
1: On behalf of all everyone in Middle Tennessee, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for your effort. So, okay, so before we get to the results themselves, Julia, I'm curious, what was turnout like?
2: Uh, it's unclear. We don't have final numbers yet, but in the early voting period, which was like two weeks before, um, you know, yesterday, we saw a, like almost a 40% drop in uh, like, People turning out to vote and primaries are kind of notorious for being low voter turnout, Mm. especially if there's not a lot of competitive races. And this year there just weren't a lot of competitive races, notably District 5 was uh, competitive for the GOP field. Um, But overall, we were kind of hearing about like sparse turnout at most locations. But it was a little spotty. So some locations had low turnout. Some locations had more turnout. So we'll see in a couple weeks, I guess, um, what the final numbers are for um, turnout.
1: Do you think that had something to do with the long ballot this year?
2: Yeah. So this is like the longest ballot um, in at least Nashville's history. There were judicial retention races, which take place every eight years. Um, So you have to vote for whether to retain or recall a judge. There were four charter amendments to to change aspects of uh, Nashville's metro charter. Um, So, yeah, there was a lot to get through. And Mm. if you kind of went in blind, you were probably spending a little time (laughs) behind the curtain trying to figure everything out.
1: So low turnout may have been low, but were there long lines anyway?
2: Yeah. So that's we, we were. Kind of first it was like nobody. We, were, we had re- reporters spread out across um, the county and, and even in neighboring counties. So we heard uh, like very low turnout in the morning. But by the evening time, we were starting to hear uh, that there were some long lines. And in fact, our reporter, Blake Farmer, uh, went to go vote in Spring Hill, which is in Williamson County. And he said he had to wait like over an hour. Mm. We also uh, read reports about uh, like 45 minute to hour long waits at like the Shelby Park Community Center. Um, so there were some hiccups. And I, I will mention that there were a lot of uh, mix ups, uh, confusion among voters about vo- but voting polling places because um, of all the redistricting. A lot of voters had to go to different polls than they previously did, and so we heard reports of people showing up and being told that that they were at the wrong location. Mm. And so they either gave up and didn't vote or they they went to go to where they were supposed to cast their ballot.
1: Okay, so you mentioned before we had WPLN reporters at polling locations all over Middle Tennessee. What were voters saying to them?
2: yeah well, it was a mix of things. We had uh, we asked a couple of questions. We had people that were excited about the um fact that the Republican voters in particular, who were like, finally, my vote will count in Nashville because of the way Republican lawmakers split up Nashville into three congressional districts that all lean Republican now. Um, so there was a, some excitement about around the nine person field of candidates uh, in the GOP race for the fifth congressional district. We also heard surprisingly about abortion from a lot of Democratic voters who were enthused by the recent um, vote in Kansas, of all places, to strike down an abortion ban. Um, so we heard a lot of Democrats at the polls saying, you know, even though abortion's not on the ballot yesterday, we want to support candidates who support abortion rights. So that was kind of a surprising thing that we heard.
1: All right. So, Blaze, one race that got a lot of people excited. They were looking at, Julia just mentioned it, the District 5 GOP primary. What happened there?
3: Well, what happened is Murray County Mayor Andy Ogles sort of ran away with the victory. He had 36 percent of the votes, close, very close to 37, right up under it. And Beth Harwell, a former House Speaker and first first female House Speaker in Tennessee, um, and Kurt Winstead, National Guardsman, both had around 25%. So they, they, mm-hmm. they sort of, uh, if they teamed up, if you could do that, then maybe they would have beat out uh, Ogles. But he ran away with the victory. Uh, 21,000 votes, the closest behind him is 15. Was that a surprise? I I don't really know if it was a surprise. He didn't raise the most money, which is sometimes a good indication. But, you know, a lot of people say money isn't doesn't vote. People vote. And maybe that they approved it for Ogles, who— I believe ran a little more conservative campaign uh, versus Harwell and Winstead.
2: Yeah, I think he had a lot of name recognition as a mayor of a county, so that helped him. And then also he had a ton of outside super PAC spending on his behalf, mm-hmm. so he was formally kind of tied to uh, Americans for Prosperity, which is a very conservative uh, group, and they were spending a lot of money. Um, to to boost his candidacy.
1: All right. Now we know that our current governor Bill Lee ran unopposed in his primary, but there was a three way race among Democrats to see who will face him in November. Blaze, what went down?
3: Yeah, um, there was Nashville medical doctor um, Jason Martin. He won the race with one hundred and one thousand votes in Memphis. Councilman J.B. Smiley Jr. had 99,000 votes, so really close, really, um, only, really only 2,000 votes apart, um, but Martin won, and it, that may be a part of you know Memphis being all the way out in West. It may have been a little harder, I would imagine, for J.B. Smiley to really get his name across the 99 counties. What do we know about Martin? Well, we know he's a doctor. He (laughs) he cares a lot about health care, obviously. He's talked about abortion rights. He's he's talked about a a lot of the things. I mean, that Smiley talked about Uh, really the biggest difference, I I believe, is just that he's really in the center of
1: Tennessee. And it was probably a lot easier to get his name out. And And he raised more money. You know, not that this is scientific in any way, but how does Doc Martin's vote total stack up against Governor Bill Lee's?
3: Yes, definitely not scientific because the the Democrat vote is split, but less Democrats voted in this election than Republicans. Uh, Governor Bill Lee has 494,000 votes for him, even though he was unopposed. So Martin will have to really get Democrats out to the ballot in order to have a a real shot here against uh, Governor Bill Lee, who I will say has raised 4.5 million. For his um, re election bid, yeah. For his re election bid, Dr. Martin, uh, last time I looked, had around 650,000, mm. so that's a, a big difference. But
2: incumbents uh, always have the advantage, you
3: yeah, know, <laughs> definitely. But, but, like I just said, ogles won and he didn't raise the most money, so okay,
1: you never know. All right, let's turn to notable state house races, Julia. Were any of them notable? Notable,
2: yes, quite a few, actually. Um, so there were some, I think, interesting state house races. Uh, one of the top ones was the uh, House District 52, which we talked about, I think, last month. Uh, that pitted uh, progressive activist Justin Jones against uh, Metro Council member Delicia Porterfield. Both like a battle of the progressives. They ran on a lot of the same issues, but Justin Jones took it pretty early in the night, and, um, so he's, and he's running unopposed in the fall. Mm. So he's headed to um, the House, which is... Kind of crazy. He's only 26 years old Mm. um, and he's best known, you know, for holding sit-ins on the Capitol grounds, getting evicted from the Capitol. So he's going to make, I think, a lot of uh, uh, headlines when he gets to the Tennessee General Assembly. And I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he he's going to do when he gets there.
1: Okay, now I think it's safe to say that even though turnout was low, the one thing on this massive ballot that did manage to gain some attention were the charter amendments.
2: Yes. And I'm not an expert on this, so I'm going to have to reference. But there were four charter amendments. All of them passed. I can give you like the TLDR if you want. Like, yes. OK. One of them was to like increase the threshold of what it takes to change the charter amendment. Yes. Um. So that it's like a little bit. Uh, so it requires like more signatures of registered voters as opposed to like a different threshold. Um, the other one is about, um, kind of changing the standards for the Metro National Police Department. Previously, the fitness standards to become an officer on the force were, um, in line with U S army and Navy standards. And that can be really prohibitive if you're trying to diversify your force and have more women and people of color on it. So, um, I believe they voted to change that. Um, and then amendment three or four kind of boring, but, uh, the Metro department of health, uh, and board of health, so the um, only a medical doctor could serve as the metro director of health, and so that this amendment removes that requirement. And Amendment Four makes the Nashville Department of Transportation permanent. It's a new department; it's only been around a year. So I hope you didn't fall asleep while I was no. There.
1: Okay. I'm super, that's okay. super exciting. Thank you. <laughs> now, okay, before we go, uh, I heard you got a perfect four for four mm. on some of your predictions, Blaze. So. You know, how does it feel to have such strong political prediction prowess? <laughs> well, Blaze
2: Ganey's crystal ball.
1: Yes. Uh,
3: <laughs> please follow me um, come general election. Yes. Uh, yep. P- plug I, your Twitter. Hopefully I go 100% <laughs> again. But, but no, seriously, uh, I think it just shows that, you know, how much I'm really out there amongst voters and, and getting a good perception of who they want to vote for and, and which way they're leaning. I've talked to a lot of people on background about the Tennessee District 5 and and that really gave me a good insight on who would walk away with with the Republican uh, primary and so uh, in in the other races same thing I've Sort of had my ears
1: to the streets, I guess I love
2: say. it. You're like, I'm just really good at my job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's perfect. Make sure you follow Blaze come November and in 2024. All right. And make sure you check out all of our coverage over at WPLN.org slash elections. That is WPLN political reporter, Blaze Ganey, and WPLN afternoon editor, Julia Ritchie. Thanks to you both for this breakdown, and thanks for all your hard work last night. We have to take a short break. When we come back, it's time for a Citizen Nashville all about teachers. What are their worries, their hopes? How have they handled the past few years? Are you a teacher? What's on your mind as the school year begins? Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. <music> teachers are responsible for a lot. They're charged not only with educating our kids, but also caring for them and guiding them. The days can be long, and yet they meet the challenge head on, year after year. And these last few years have been some of the toughest in memory for teachers and students. To help us understand where teachers are at right now, on the cusp of another school year, I'd like to introduce my first guests. Davin Oglesby is an exceptional education teacher at Lakeville Elementary Design Center, and Susan Sh- Lakeview. Pardon me, Lakeview Elementary Design Center, and Susan Strasinger is a teacher at Hillsborough High School, and Laurel De- Laura Delgado is program director of the Pinero. Scholars of Liscomb College and Education, Darren, Susan, and Laura. Welcome to This is Nashville.
4: Thank you for having us. Thanks., thank
1: you. thank you so much. so glad to be here. Glad to have you all with us, you know. School starts on Monday. Davin, I'm wondering, how are you feeling? Are you excited to get back to teaching?
0: Uh, yes, actually I am. I'm starting my fifth year of education, um, teaching education, but my seventh year overall, I'm truly, truly excited. I didn't think I was going to be this excited, but the thought of just coming back to a new school year and seeing my kids, you know, wave at me or hug me in the hallways, I'm ready to get back and see them. Yes, sir. Why did you think you wouldn't be this excited before the school year began? So in in all honesty, um, I teach elementary special education and my role previously was that of a self-contained teacher. So I, I work with kids who have, you know, about 70 to 80 percent of their day in a separate setting than their gen ed peers. But this year I'm working with a different set of students who have a different set of needs. So there's some anxiety and a little bit of discomfort or non-closure attached to that, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm learning to sit in that and be okay with it um, and just embrace it and accept it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Susan, how about you? Are you looking forward to hearing that first bell ring?
4: Well, maybe not the bell because we have new bells at Hillsborough, but I am looking forward to seeing my students and um, really taking on a year that might be the most normal year that I can remember in the last five.
1: What subjects do you
4: teach? Well, I teach. I'm in the Academy of International Business and Communications at Hillsborough, and I teach um, social media marketing and analytics, advertising and PR. I have a Associated Press journalism program, and I teach computer apps.
1: Wow that's something else. I didn't, they didn't offer that when I was in high school. Now you've been a teacher for quite some time and I'm sure you have an established routine down by now, but is there anything special that you do to make the first day of school memorable?
4: Well, having a name like Straysinger mispronounced, I understand how students feel when they get into a classroom and somebody mispronounces their name on day one. So I spent a lot of time, uh, Trying to make sure that I've got their name down, talking to their previous teachers, making sure that when I call their name, that I'm calling it correctly.
1: Mm. How how do they respond when that happens?
4: They're surprised, some of them, because they are used to having their name mispronounced like I am.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Laura, you work with new teachers and help them to adjust to life in the classroom. How are some of those first and second year teachers you've worked with? How are they feeling about this coming school year?
5: Um, you know, there's mixed emotions. I had uh one second year teacher tell me that they think they're experiencing some PTSD. As they prepare for this year, um, it got real as they started setting up their classroom and started attending planning sessions at their school. Um, I had a second year teacher who's a second grade teacher look at me and say, it can't possibly be as bad as last year. Um, As a second grade teacher last year, they effectively felt that they were a kindergarten, first grade and second grade teacher all rolled into one Mm -hmm. because many of their students hadn't actually attended in um, school in person before that year. So it was a year of pure chaos. So from their perspective, um, things can only go up from here. So I think there's just the emotions are kind of all over the board. Um, I've also heard some anxieties and some fears, you know, about the political conversations about book banning um, and the discussions around LGBTQ content and how that might impact them or how families might feel or if this might change the way that they engage with families. So there's a lot to think about.
1: Now, does is being a newer teacher a little bit easier or harder given the past few years in the fluctuations of our education system?
5: I think that it's harder because each year at this point, we have no idea what to expect. Because I think before last year, everyone would have told you that we thought that the transition to virtual teaching and hybrid teaching during um, COVID was the hardest thing we could possibly have done. But last year was uniquely difficult and it was exhausting. Um, I think last year was an incredibly hard time to be a first year teacher. On top of that, in MNPS, we changed our elementary curriculums and we also changed our secondary ELA curriculums. So that was a lot to take on um, for a new teacher. So I think right now the sense is just that every year there's something new and things are impacting students and their communities in a way that that no one else knows how to handle either. Right. So it's not like the veteran educators can turn around and be like, oh, I guess I've lived through a pandemic before. Let me help you with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a uniquely stressful time for new teachers.
1: Davin, I want you to talk about that. Like you've been in education only for a few years, then the pandemic hits and you've got to completely change how you go about working with your students and the fact that you work in exceptional education, what was it like having to switch over to remote learning for you and your students?
0: Uh, for I can speak for me first. Um, I will say it was very difficult, right? Um, not the technology piece, but just more so how to translate hands-on tactile learning um, to one that's now virtual. Um, a lot of my students require you know, one-on-one support in order to meet certain tasks, right? Um, In order to have, you know, gross motor skills or fine motor skills or even physical therapy. Um, So it's just those sorts of things don't translate very well to the virtual setting, right? Um, However, I still had to adjust to how do I plan lessons around through through a computer with students who are already nonverbal. So just thinking about some of the communication needs that they had and some of the different academic needs that they had, adjusting to virtual learning for me was incredibly difficult. Um, And for my students, I got the sense from my families that they were just trying to do the best they could in terms of placement in the household for a computer or times during the day where they would have available to log into a certain lesson. Or for some of my students, you know, they were having, you know, real meltdowns at home because it was they had a system and a routine in place in school and now they don't have that. So there was an adjustment there for my families as well. And I did my best to make sure that at all times I just remained as equitable and as peaceful as possible in showing them that compassion
1: and that grace. Did you have support from your administration?
0: Yes, uh, the one thing I will say about Lakeview Elementary Design Center is our administration was extremely supportive in that. They allowed me to have the flexibility to meet with my students when I could you know and speaking with my families around what schedules work best for them, I was able to accommodate different days and times where they needed to meet. Uh, like I said, with the permission of my principal, because we all had a strict schedule that we were following for virtual learning. But she gave me the autonomy to meet with them when they were able to. Um, so that was really good. So, yes, I definitely had admi-
1: support from my administration. Susan, tell me, how did the pandemic approach change your approach to teaching? Well, the
4: the pandemic um, was was. As everybody has said, just unique. But I think it was harder coming back from a pandemic for a high school because we all had to, and I say we, I mean me, and I think of a lot of teachers, we had to relearn how to do school, and many students had to relearn how to do school too. And so I'm really looking forward to, we it's sort of like we got all those uh, best practice. Uh, routines in place last year. And I I feel like we're going to be able to just take off running this year. And I'm really excited about that.
1: Now, nationwide, a lot of teachers who decided to leave the profession after the pandemic, a lot of them did. And staffing has been an issue at Metro schools before COVID. Laura, how has this phenomenon made teaching more difficult for teachers?
5: Um, You know, I heard a lot of talk from my alumni that I support this year um, about you know constantly being pulled out of planning to cover for other folks because that's what happens when you're when you're down capacity you know and in it's worst case scenarios sometimes that means you're pulling multiple classrooms into the gym or the library and one person is managing three groups of students And I think at first, a lot of my, you know, novice teachers in their first one or two years, they thought it was just their school until they were talking to their peers across the district. And they realized the entire district is struggling with this. And so I think that is a huge challenge to add on top of everything else. When you're losing your one key planning period, that is a critical time of day for a teacher to have a break, to have a meal, to get caught up, to answer emails, right, Mm -hmm. for For young teachers, they're like, they email me all day long and I'm teaching, like, how do I answer? So that's a critical time in the teacher's day. And if you think about that, you know, for someone working in an office, we have time to go to the bathroom. We have time to eat lunch. We have time to sit down and quietly answer emails. But for a teacher, um, often that might only occur during planning. And so consistently losing planning adds to the stress and the exhaustion level in a really, Um, difficult
1: way. As a former educator myself, I truly understand the value of planning periods. Sometimes I was lucky enough to get two within a week or a school day, and we, we, we got responses from a level five high school teacher. They say, I have panic attacks every day, every July, thinking about coming to school. I think that leaving every day and I can't wait until the day where I can retire. If I only dealt with the kids, I'd teach forever. It's the adults that sour the experience. I transferred schools in tears this year, so I'm hoping that helps. Now, Susan, that sounds pretty cynical, but I get it. I get it. As a veteran teacher, do you have any words of advice for this person?
4: Well, um, I, I guess well, we, we are struggling, I think, in our district with um, staffing. But then when I hear what it's like in surrounding counties, I realize we're pretty blessed. Uh, we've got not as near as many uh, vacancies as say Rutherford County, where um, a friend told me yesterday that 300 parents are going to be installed to teach classes. And um, so I I feel like that the best thing we can do is rely on each other and our colleagues to, um, to get that support system around us. And we did that last year here at Hussler. We, Um, we had to cover classes. And what we would do is several of us would just get together and cover it together. And um, while that was different, we were able to find other ways to teach students in a big, large setting in the gym. And uh, I'm not saying we want to repeat that, but, you know, I think that if there's a concern that we all have, it's that how are our new teachers, as veteran teachers, we're concerned about our new teachers and how do they navigate that same kind of situation?
1: What kind of dangers does it pose when 300 teachers in Rutherford County, as you're saying, 300 parents have to then become surrogate teachers in that way? What type of dangers does that present?
4: Um, well, I, th- I think that we're educated uh, in our profession for a reason. And, and that is to provide the best education we can for students in the safest environment we can for the students while managing both classroom management and uh, those things outside of our classroom. And that doesn't happen overnight. And it, it's um, it, I guess I, I, would, I would be concerned just from a safety standpoint, but I, I don't think that's happening here. I know our building is almost fully staffed, and um, I, you know, I, I think our district's done a good job of trying to fill the vacancies. Um, mm-hmm. However, I don't know what you do when there's not somebody to fill it with.
1: Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour about teachers and what they're looking forward to for this school year. We got a message from one educator who says he really appreciates parents who volunteer at a school but also wants less interference in the classroom. It reads, Please stop trying to get involved in their education by dismantling the tools we have to teach. Stop banning books. Stop trying to make my hard job so much harder. Let me teach about MLK and Sylvia Mendez and Ruby Bridges. Let me teach about seahorses. Let me teach. So get involved, but stay in your lane, you know? Now." Davin, how do you feel about the politicization of education? Because that kind of feels where this message is coming from.
0: Um, I feel a few ways about it, but I think the most important piece that I've I've taken with me these past couple of years is we as educators have a job to do, right? And it's not always the academic piece. We are also charged with developing the full social, emotional, and cultural responsiveness of students, right? It's difficult to do that if they don't have what's called a, win, a window and a mirror, right? If we're not presenting them with content and curriculum and literacy and you know representation that mirrors their experiences, either in diverse teachers or diverse books and curriculum, then we're doing them a disservice, right? As, as Gloria latsing Billing says, they're gonna go out into a global workforce and not have that cultural competency. So for me, it's more so about how can we as a district or how can we as a country develop children to their full social, emotional, and you know, cultural potential if we're only presenting them with a Eurocentric view of what education is.
1: And it kind of goes into more of what the kids see. I, like I said, a former educator, I taught in an elementary school in Los Angeles, then at a high school, a continuation high school in LA and a charter school in Albuquerque. And in all of my experience in that time, I was one of the only black male teachers there. For mm-hmm. the kids to see. And I noticed not only did it affect the students that I taught directly, the kids in my classroom, but other kids simply on the campus. What does yeah. you know, what does that mean to you, Davin?
0: Oh man, um, you hit the nail on the head. That's everything to me. Um, I, I'm not selfish in saying that I want to be a part of that change around the narrative of black male educators, right? So I have something really cool I'm working on this year to kind of get that off the ground. But for me, being a black male educator has definitely changed the perspective at my school of what's possible, right? I talked about when I did the DEI trainings that we have here in the district around diversity and equity, if we're able to put just one black teacher in schools, it increases the rates of graduation for many students, right? You increase the representation of a profession that's possible, you increase the representation of having shared perspectives and shared lived experiences. Um, Like yourself, I I didn't have my first black male teacher until I was maybe in seventh grade, Uh. seventh or eighth grade. So by that time, you know, that foundational learning of kindergarten through sixth grade, I never saw a black male teacher. My first teacher of color uh, was in Texas. Uh, She was Hispanic actually. And that was the first teacher that I think about when I think about who saw me, who felt who I felt like heard me, who I felt like acknowledged me for who I was outside of my academic potential or lack thereof at the time, right? Um so for me, you know to answer your question, it's everything. It changes the perspective of all students for me, not just black and brown students, but all students I feel can benefit from having diverse
1: teachers in their classrooms. You know, um one of the keys, one of the keys to Having a good education system is relationships between parents and teachers. Susan, what would you say the relationship with the students that you've worked with and their parents and yourself, this triangle, this triad, so to speak, what would you say it's like?
4: Well, I always refer back to I think it's a coaching metaphor somewhere in my history where the you had the stool that has three legs and you, you take one of those legs out. You don't have a place to sit and um, so we have a fantastic uh, PTSO and it, it's, it's really a blessing. And we also have a fantastic administrator who helps us navigate, um, his name is Dr. Pelham by the way, uh, who helps us navigate what um, is too much involvement with our parents and he really takes care of that. And so we get to have a great relationship with our parents, but. Students in high school, they really want to solve problems with you. And so I really work one-on-one more with the students than I do, you know, if I call your mom, it's really bad Uh (laughs) because I want to solve the problem in the classroom with you because in four years, you're going to be out solving, maybe sooner, um, solving problems in the workplace. So I see that as a workplace skill, the problem solving with our students and parents.
1: That is high school teacher Susan Straysinger. She was joined by exceptional education teacher Davin, Davin Oglesby and Laura Delgado of the Lipscomb College of Education. I want to thank you all for joining us today and good luck this coming school year. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with education experts who will address your concerns. There's still time to give us your thoughts about what you want to see this school year. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colona. and this is Citizen Nashville. Earlier this hour, we heard from teachers about how they are feeling as we get ready for the new school year. Here to help us get a sense of how their concerns are being addressed, I'd like to in- bring in my next guests. Michelle Sheriff is president of the Metropolitan Nashville Education Association, and Dr. Mason Bellamy is chief of academics and schools for MNPS. Michelle, Dr. Bellamy, welcome to Citizen Nashville.
6: Thank you for inviting me.
7: Thank you for having us. Really, pleasure to have you both. Now, now Mason, how are you feeling as this school year begins? I was fortunate enough to be listening um, to your previous segment, and I think a lot like Davin, who I've met through a teacherpreneur program last year, so excited to see him back in the classroom for us. He's a wonderful teacher. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited and ready to start the year off in what I hope is a much more normal fashion, what us educators have been used to doing for a very long time. Everybody wants that normalcy back. Now, are you confident in how this district has prepared for the academic year? Yes, sir. I'm more than confident. We've got literally thousands thousands of employees, hardworking teachers and principals that um, train to do just this, and have been working hard at it for over a month now. A district our size is certainly complex. We'll need to ask for some patience. There'll certainly be a bus running late or an an accident on the highway that might delay some buses. But I'm confident in the staff and the hardworking teachers and principals across this district that we're set up for success on day one.
1: Now, Michelle, you represent and advocate for public school teachers. How are you feeling about this school year?
6: Well, I think that we share the excitement that Davin and Susan expressed. Um, We have heard from our members and teachers that there is just a buzz of excitement in the building they're excited to be back with their colleagues this week and they're looking forward to welcoming their students next monday
1: now given everything that's happened over the few years and from your conversations with members what do you think their overall sense of well-being is right now
6: um i do think as uh, laura talked about there are some social emotional needs for our students Um, The district has put in place some uh, measures and um, things to support not only students, but our educators. Um, There is some nervousness around things that happened last year. Will those carry over such as shortages, increased workload? Um, What supports will be there to help with those things moving forward?
1: Now, Laura Delgado mentioned she heard from a teacher who felt like they had PTSD after last year. Do you hear that often?
6: It's been a tough three years. So if you think back before COVID, we had the tornado and we had schools affected. And just when schools got settled back in for three days, we were out for essentially a year with COVID and supporting school uh, students you know, with not only their academic needs, but making sure they had meals and other things um, of that nature. And then we came back to what was potentially a normal year. And last year just wasn't um, normal as what we think of pre-COVID. So like Mason said, I think people are excited to just go back having last year under their belt to start the school year, hopefully in a smoother fashion than it was last year.
1: Now, a lot of teachers have left the profession since the pandemic as a fallout of the politicization of education has become increasingly tense. Here's a clip from a veteran teacher who left the job.
2: I loved my 20 years in public education, working with uh, the most loving and wise teachers and staff and the most wonderful families and children. Um, the main reason... I left is the impact of politics and policies passed down from people who don't care about anyone but themselves, at least that's how they appear. These people don't know anything about education or human growth and development or psychology or the fact that teachers do far more than just teach from the book. um, We are social workers and counselors and nurses and mamas and daddies and um, so many other things. Um, And they didn't show teachers any respect, dignity or trust that we deserve and that we've earned.
1: You know, we've heard teachers are feeling increased scrutiny from parents and lawmakers over the past few years, especially when it comes to books and teaching materials. Mason, what do you tell teachers who are concerned about increased scrutiny from parents and legislatures when it comes to these books and other teaching materials?
7: That's a, a great question, and first, thank you for, for playing that clip. I think um, the, the lady who spoke there did so pretty eloquently about how many of our teachers would feel, how many of my principals would feel. Um, the first thing I would tell our teachers is that we don't want them carrying the burden of, of worried about – um violating a law that that they had no part of passing because they're simply teaching a curriculum that that we've adopted. Um, you heard Davin speak so passionately about the things he believes in and the opportunities our kids need to read books and be exposed to things. So I would tell them, um, I want any of our teachers out there listening that um, I, I want them to let to be able to drop that anxiety and put that on me and my team. Um we have legislators that pass multiple laws every year over, Over 50 I've just reviewed in the last month that affect us in some way, and we work really hard to try to put policies and practices in place to protect our teachers so they can focus on teaching. And so what I can guarantee them is if they're using the resources that we've provided them, the curriculum that we've provided them, that they I want them to know and hear me say we have their back. And that as long as they're doing those things and they keep us in a position where we can defend that, I don't want them to have to feel like they have to. If they have a parent that reaches out concerned about a book, whether it's about civil rights or seahorses, those parents have policies and that they can avail themselves of if they need to. And they're clearly posted on our website and they can talk to their principal and then ultimately directly to my office and we will be the ones to help uh, parents work through what their what their options are. But I wouldn't want any teacher to feel like they had to handle the brunt of that. They need to focus on those those students in front of them and the job that they're doing. And I I know they're going to feel that stress, but we hope to take that burden from them in any way that we can. So you've let the teachers
1: know that you all are willing to absorb that burden and those pressures?
7: I I hope they know that. This is me saying it right now. I've let the principals know. I work directly with my executive directors who are principal supervisors and directly with the principals. And so I'm hopeful that every teacher knows that they have that direct connection. I heard three teachers earlier talk about how strong their principals were. I hope they all know they have that direct connection. If they feel like they need more support, they can email me directly, mason.bellamy at mmps.org, and I'll make sure they get the support they need as well, sir.
1: All right. Kristen Behoff is a teacher who has some concerns about staffing shortages this coming year.
2: A lot of our contract staff, occupational therapists, and speech and language pathologists have been leaving. They do not get benefits and are paid poorly. How do we expect to keep good therapists for
5: our most vulnerable students when they're not being treated well?
1: Michelle, what are you hearing from your members about teacher and staff shortages?
6: So our teachers do have concerns about um, staff shortages. There are still some open positions in the district. Um, and they're concerned, um, as Kristen just stated, about students not receiving their services. Um, so if teachers are shifted into positions to cover classroom positions, then students might not receive ill services that they should. And it just creates um, for the teachers in buildings if there are shortages and the teachers are picking up the slack it creates more work for the teachers there. And that then that leads to the exhaustion that we've seen over the past few years that have caused teachers to leave because of unreasonable expectations and workloads.
1: Now,
7: Mason, how is the district working to address these shortages? So I, I think, uh, one, say hello to, to Michelle. Michelle and I work together every Friday on problems just like this. And so we certainly... Um, I. I We have the same concerns that our teachers have. Um, I think there's long-term and short-term fixes. You heard some of our teachers talk about the creative things they do to cover classrooms. Um, I love that creativity and that support, but at the same time, that means they're not focused on their number one job, which is teaching their own preps. And to echo Michelle's sentiment, we know that adds to the stress. And so long term, we're looking at um, Metro Nashville public school teachers are the highest paid in the state. Um, we're grateful to have and thankful for a mayor and city council who have continued to advocate and support us with that and a strong partnership with MNEA. So we'll continue to treat our teachers um, and, and pay them like the, the educated professionals they deserve to be. Um, continuing to, um, to fill those vacancies in long-term ways that way and look at, at creative paths, including growing our own students and partnerships that Dr. Battle's been successful in creating with TSU and other universities around the city um, to where we're going to have over 200 scholarships for students coming out, many of which we hope to, we'll, we'll decide to teach right in our schools. Short term, my staff and I have been working with our principals around the clock, um, figuring out ways that we can be on the ground, boots on the ground, the very first day, support hub members in schools. Every school will have a group of support hub members assigned to it that we hope can be covering classes so teachers aren't having to do that um, as we look at adjusting schedules creatively and and things of that nature. And enjoying our strong partnership with MNEA to come to the table every single week and talk about working conditions um, and places we need to focus more attention.
1: What about a nice living wage and decent pay for the support staff. As a teacher, I was in the classroom, I would have two, sometimes three teaching assistants, and their assistance was invaluable, not only to me as a teacher being able to get work done and go through with my lesson plans and even or prepare, but the relationships they built with the students were sometimes very special, and they were the only ones that could get through to these kids. Paying these people the value of that work and that they present, I feel is that it's a natural choice. What are you all doing towards that?
7: Uh, Thank you for that question. So one, um, Paying somebody what they're worth to make those connections, I think we can all agree you're gonna have a hard time getting to that level, right? What what is it? What is that worth to have someone connecting with a student that way? That's certainly hard to to draw a hard dollar line on. But we have a board that has and a director that has fiercely advocated for that living wage. We were over fifteen dollars an hour a couple of years ago. We just saw an, an, an another large increase from the the city council that will be going to support staff. Um, to get them out of living wage so they can live in the city in which they work, where they're investing in our students. I've had similar experiences as a teacher and a principal where some of the most valuable staff in my building were our support staff. And I know our teachers have come to bat to advocate for them and have spoken at board meetings. And I think Michelle would tell you the same thing that I am right now, that we're, we're excited to see that investment, and we hope to con- continue seeing progress towards that investment.
1: All right, Michelle, you got 30 seconds. Is there anything you'd like to see the district do differently this year?
6: Um, we just, as Mason said, we actually do, uh, meet and partner a lot. We actually partnered on, um, something today to resolve an issue at a building. So we appreciate that. We would like to continue that and just have transparency, um, around things happening in the district. And then, um, all right. I'm going to have to info. stop
1: you there so much. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle Sheriff. It I want to thank you so much for being with us, and Dr. Mason Bellamy. Really appreciate having you both here. It's Friday. That means it's time to hop out of the studio and into the shotgun with the fellow Middle Tennessean. This week, I'm meeting up with Alex Lute, teacher, as he heads to Walmart to buy some school supplies. Get ready. School's back in session. Explain the the situation with your school and how they fund everything.
8: Yeah, so we have a PTO made of awesome parent volunteers and we do community building events throughout the year and some fundraising and there's just some money set aside for whatever instructional supplies and materials that we need. That's really awesome. Yeah.
1: That's not, that's not common. No, probably not. Yeah. Or maybe not to that scale. So... What are we looking at? What's on the list? <laughs> Uh, your list is on the phone. I'm, I'm more of an analog lister. Oh, yeah. I, I, I like
8: making actual lists as well, but you know? Yeah. So one of the things on my personal list is grading pens. I have some at school, but I wanted to have some at home, mm-hmm. so I didn't have to move them back and forth all the time. I have colored tissue paper on my list, because we do this big end of the year hot air balloon project. Tell me a
1: little bit more about this hot air balloon project. That sounds awesome. <laughs>
8: Um, Okay, so it's after TN Ready, like the state testing, because we've already taught our standards, and we have like two and a half weeks left. It's really an introduction to the sixth grade standards of like heat transfer and air pressure and density, and so we learn all about that, and you know the kids do all this stuff with hot air balloons, and then they make these giant hot air balloons, like you can put a child in them that's huge, and we have a hot air balloon launch day, and parents come, and we run these propane burners and heat them up with and they, they take off. It's super, I'll show you a picture, it's super yeah, cool. I'd love like um, to see that. I scout out fun tissue paper all year long. Okay. <laughs> and you have like three kids in a group. Each group will use a minimum of 21 sheets of tissue paper. All right. I mean, so it's a lot, but like, you know, and the kids get to pick what they want and design what they want and everyone likes that, so. Yeah, we're going to just get like a bunch of the basics. I'm going to get a pencil box. Actually, let's get a pencil bag.
1: That's better for in your binder. This reminds me of the days in school and trying to get those <laughs> trapper keepers.
8: Metro's doing this thing called Avid this year, and if you follow the Avid method, kids have like one binder for all their things and there's a whole like method to how kids do it to help them like learn organizational skills. Mhm. So we'll see if that,
1: if that works this year. <laughs> I could have used that. <laughs> We're looking at rulers, glue sticks. This is taking me back. Is it? Yeah. My school, elementary school, started making us use glue sticks strictly because, you know, we would have the glue bottles, but we would waste them in making molds of our hands.
8: Yes. That was always a lot of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look at that. So the Elmer's is probably the better glue, and it's only 54 cents, but it's out of stock. That
5: sucks.
8: Supply chain. I know. Uh, are you from Nashville? No, I'm from the south side of Chicago. Okay. I came here 11 years ago. My side business is that I flip and build houses. Has business been good? Uh, yeah, it has been. Uh, people always ask me how I have time for that, and it's like, well, every teacher needs a side hustle or a well-paid spouse mm. in order to <laughs> in mm. order to keep teaching. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll tell you this. They also have uh, composition books on here, but my girlfriend used to work at this design place where they designed all like the notebooks and stuff for Walmart and Target, and we still have thousands of samples left in the closet, okay. so I don't actually have to buy those. Well, there you go. <laughs> what else do I have on my list? Oh, and this is something I have to buy on my own because no one will pay for this, but like, always need like little candy, you know? Kids will do a whole lot for a piece of candy. Mm-hmm and then I gotta find duct tape. Okay,
1: bribery works. Mm -hmm. In in my days, when I taught, I would offer lunch, a free lunch, to those who really stepped up and helped out.
8: See, kids will do a lot for food. Yes. I had a 95% and above club last year, and so it was like kids whose average was, for the whole year, 95% or above, which was hard. And I had eight kids, and like, They did anything for pizza and a coke. Like I was like, all right, this is easy. We motivated you. If only adults were that easy. (laughs) Yeah, good old number two lead pencils. Goes to my school. She has my shirt on.
1: Oh, nice. (laughs) She's a student getting her supplies. (laughs) That's funny. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Monday, we're talking about Nashville, the 1975 Robert Altman film that had a rocky premiere here in Music City. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to Doreen Chernecki, our intern. And the masterminds behind our theme music are L'Aranj and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Emily Masters. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil Akulona. We'll see you next week, everybody. And be good to each other.